0: chapter four of j poindexter colored by urban s cobb sleeper recording is in the public domain harlem heights well in the morning i arranges a snack of nutritious breakfast on a tray and takes it in to mr dallas but he ain't craving nothing solid to eat he's just craving to lay still and favor his headache soon as he opens his eyes he starts in groaning like he's done got far behind with his groaning and is striving for to catch up and i knows he must a felt powerful good last night to be feeling so bad this morning misery may love company as some say it do but i takes notice that very often she don't arrive till after the company is gone he tells me to take them vittles out of his sight and fix him up about a gallon of good cold ice-water and set it alongside his bed in easy reach and then i can leave him be where he is and go out for a while and seek amusement looking at the sights and scenes of new york city but when i gets to the door he calls out to me i better make it two gallons which I knows by that he ain't so far gone, but what he can still joke. So I goes on out, just strolling along in a general direction, a-looking at this and admiring a bat, and there certainly is a heap for to see and for to admire. The houses is so tall it seems like the sky is resting almost on the tops of em, and it's mighty near the bluest sky and the clearest ever I seen it makes you want to get up there and fly round in it but down below in the street there ain't so very much brightness by reason of the buildings being so high they cuts off the daylight somewhat it's like walking through a hollow betwixt steep hills people is stirring around every which both on foot and in automobiles and most of the automobiles is all shined up nice and clean like as if the owners was going to take part in an automobile parade in connection with a convention everybody is extensively well dressed too but most all is wearing a kind of a brooding look like they had family troubles at home or something else to pester em and they ain't stopping one another when they meets and saying ain't it a lovely morning and passing the time of day like we does down home. Even some of them which comes out of the same house together just goes bulging on without a word to nobody. And I remarks to myself that a lot of the neighbors in this district must a had a falling out amongst themselves and quit speaking. The children on the sidewalk ain't playing much together neither. Either they plays off by themselves or they just walks along with their keepers. And there is almost as many dogs as there is children. Mostly small, fool-looking dogs. And the dogs is all got keepers, too, dragging em on chains and jerking em up sharp when they tries to linger and smell round for strange smells, and confab with passing dogs. Near as I can make out, the dogs here ain't allowed to behave like regulation dogs, and the children mainly tries to act like as if they was already growed up. And the growed up ones has caught the prevailing glumness disease, and I is approximately almost the only person in sight that's getting much enjoyment out of being in New York. All of a sudden I hears the dad-blamedest blim-blamming behind me. I turns round quick, and here comes the New York City paid fire department going to a fire. The biggest fire engine ever I sees goes scooting by, tearing the road wide open and making a most awful racket right behind comes the hook and ladder wagon with the firemen hanging on to both sides of it trying to stick fast and put their rubber coats on at the same time and right behind it comes a big red automobile lickety-split setting up alongside the driver of it is a gentleman in blue clothes and brass buttons which he's got a big cigar clamped betwixt his teeth and looks highly important but he ain't wearing a flannel shirt open at the throat but has got his coat on and it buttoned up so i assumes it can't be the chief of the department but probably must be the mayor and in less'n no time they all has swung off into a side street two squares away with me taking out after em down the middle of the street fast as i can travel now every town where i've been at heretofore to this when the fire bell rings, everybody drops whatever they is doing and goes to the fire. Elsewhere from New York, enjoying fires is one of the main pleasures of people. But soon I is surprised to see that I'm pretty near the only person which is trailing along after the department. Whilst I'm still wondering over this circumstance, but still running also a police grabs me by the arm and asks me where is i going in such a big hurry i tells him i is going to the fire and he says to me that i might as well slow up and save my breath because it's liable to be quite a long trip for me i asks him how come and he says the fire is probably three or four miles from here and maybe even considerable further than that and i says to him that must make it mighty inconvenient for all concerned having the fires so far away from the engine-house at that he sort of chuckles and tells me to be on my way but to keep my eyes open and not let the cows nibble me well as i says to myself going away from him i may be green but i is getting some enjoyment out of being here which is more'n I can say for some folks round these parts, judging by what I has seen up to this here present moment. So I meanders along, looking at this and that, and turning corners every once in a while, and after a spell it comes to me that I has meandered myself into an exceedingly different neighborhood from the one I started out from. The houses is not so tall, and is more or less rusty-looking, and there's a set of railroad tracks running through, built up on a high trestle, and whilst there has been a falling off in dogs there has been an ample increase in children. The place just swarms with em. These here children is running loose all over the sidewalks and out in the streets too, but it seems like to me they spends more time quarreling than what they does playing. Or maybe it sounds like quarreling because they has to hollow so loud on account of all the noises occurring round em. I decides to go back, but the trouble is I don't rightly know which is the right way to turn. I've been sashaying about so, first to the right and then to the left, that I ain't got no more sense of direction than one of these here patent egg beaters. so I rambles on getting more and more bewildered-like all the time, till I comes to another police and I walks up to him and states my predicament to him very polite and tells him I needs help getting back to where I belongs at. He looks at me very strict, like he can't make up his mind whether he'd better run me in for vagrancy or let me go. And then he says, kind of short, Make it snappy, then. Where d'ye live? i tells him i has done forgot the name of the street if indeed i ever heard it but from the looks of it i judges it must be the chief residence street where the best families resides i tells him we has just moved in there mr dallas pulliam and me and has started up housekeeping in the department house which stands on the principal corner I tells him it's the department house where the inmates all lives in layers, one upon top of the other, like martins in a martin box. You mean apartment house, he says. Department store, but apartment house. Well what's the name of this apartment house, then, if you can't remember the street? That makes me scratch under my hat, too, cause I pointedly doesn't know that neither now mind the name boss i says "Just you please sir tell me Warbouts is the leaden apartment house of this year city of new york that'll be it the leadenest one cause mr dallas pulliam he is accustomed to the best wherever he go but he only acts like he's getting more and more impatient with me describe it he says describe it there's one chance in a thousand that might help. What does it look like? So I tells him what it looks like, how a little private road winds in and circles round a little place which is like a family burying ground, and about the hands downstairs at the front door, all being from West Indiana, and about there being two elevators for the residenters, and one more for the help, and about us having took over the soublette family's outfit and all. No use, he says, when I gets through. That sounds just like most of the expensive ones. He starts walking off like he has done lost all interest in my case. Then he calls back to me over his shoulder. I'll tell you what's the matter with you, he says. You're lost. Yes, yeah, sir, I says. Thank you, sir. Tha's what I've been suspicionin' my own ownsef. I says, but I'm much obliged you agrees with me. Still, that ain't helping much to find out this here police thinks the same way I does about it. Whilst I is lingering there, wondering what I better do next, if anything, I sees a street car go scooting by up at the next crossing, and I gets an idea if streetcars in new york is anything like they is at home sooner or later they all turns into the main street and runs either past the city hall or to the union depot so i allows to myself that i'll go on up yonder and climb aboard the next car which comes along and stay on her no matter how far she goes till she swings back off the branch onto the trunk line and i'll watch out then and when she goes past our corner i'll drop off doing it that away, way i figures that sooner or later i'm bound to fetch up back home again anyhow the scheme is worth trying specially as i can't seem to think of no better one so i accordingly does so but i ain't staying on that car so very long not more than a mile at the most the reason i gets offer so soon is this all at once i observes that i is skirting through a district which is practically exclusively all colored on every side i sees nothing but colored folks both big and little seemingly everything in sight is organized by and for my race colored barber shops colored undertaking parlors colored dentists offices colored doctor's offices. On one corner there is even a colored vaudeville theater, and out in the middle of the streets stands a colored police. Excusing that the houses is different and the streets is wider, it's mighty near the same as being on Plunkett's Hill on a Saturday evening. I almost expects to see that there Esop, loving loafing along, all dressed up fit to kill or maybe red hoss Shackleford, setting in a doorway following after his regular business of resting or old pappy Exall, the pastor of zion chapel rambling by with that big stomach of his'n sticking out in front of him like two gallons of chitterlings wrapped up in a black gunny-sack it certainly does fill me with the homesickness longings and then a big black man on the pavement opens his mouth wide nigger-like and laughs at something till you can hear him half a mile pretty near it which it is the first sure-enough laugh i has heard since i hit new york and right on top of that i catches the smell of fat meat frying somewheres i just naturally can't stand it no longer anyhow if i'm predestinated to be lost in new york city it's better i should be lost amongst my own kind which talks my native language rather than amongst plumb strangers i give the conductor the high sign and i says to him i says cap'n lemme off before i jumps off so he rings the signalling bell and she stops and lets me off and verily, before I has went hardly any distance at all, somebody hails me. I is wandering along, sort of miscellaneous, looking in the store windows and up at the tops of the buildings, when a brown complexed man steps up to me and sticks out his hand and he says Hello thar, Alfred Ricketts, what you doin' so fur away from old Lynchburg I says to him he must a made a mistake and he says go on way boy and quit your fooling this is bound to be alfred ricketts at i used to know down in lynchburg virginia leastwise if tain't him it's his duplicate twin brother i tells him no my name ain't alfred ricketts it's jeff poindexter from paducah and i ain't never been in no place called lynchburg in my whole life as i knows of he looks at me a minute in a kind of an unbelieving way and then he says he begs my pardon but his excuse is that i'm the exact spit and image of this here alfred ricketts which he says he's done played with him many's the time when they was both boys together he says he ain't never in all his born days seen two fellows which they wasn't no kin to each other and yet looked so much similar as him and me does he says the way we favors each other is absolutely unanimous. He asks me to tell him again what my name is, and I does so. And then he says to me, Wharabouts you say you hails from? I says, Paducah, Vazwar. He shakes his head kinda of puzzled. Paducah, he says, I ain't never heerd tell of it. Whar is it, Tennessee or Arkansas? I pities his ignorance, but I tells him where Paducah is located at. It seems like the very sound of the name detains his curiosity. He just shoots the inquiring questions at me. He wants to know how big is Paducah, and what is its main business, and what river is it on or close to, and what railroads run in there, and a lot more things. So seeing he's a seeker after truth, I pumps him full. I tells him we not only is got one river at Paducah, we is got two. And I tells him about what railroads we've got running in, and about the big high water of 1913, and about the night Rider troubles some years before that. I tells him a heap else besides, mainly recent doings, such as Judge Priest having retired, and the illinois central having built up their shops to double size then he excuses himself some more and steps away pretty brisk and goes into a colored billiard parlor and i continues on my lonesome way but inside of five minutes another fellow speaks to me and by my own entitled name too only this one is a kind of a pale tallow color with a lot of gold teeth showing and very sporty dressed, he comes busting up to me like he's overjoyed to see me, and says, "Hello, Jeff Poindexter! When did you get here? You sure is a sight for the sore eyes. How you leave everybody down in old Paduce, and how does your own copperosity seem to sagasuate?" all the time he's saying this he's clamping my hand very affectionate like i was his long-lost brother or something i tells him his manner is familiar but that i can't place him he acts surprised at that surprised and sort of hurt-like he asks me don't i remember george harris from down home I tells him the onlyest George Harris of color I remembers is an old man which he does janiting for the First National Bank. And he speaks up very prompt and says that's his uncle, which he is named for him and used to live with him out by the Illinois Central shops. He says he really don't blame me so much for not placing him, because he left there it's going on eight or nine years ago, just before the big high water. But he claims he used to meet me frequent, and says I ain't changed much from the time when I used to be working for Judge Priest. He says he's sure he'd a recognized me if he'd a met up with me in China, let alone it's New York. He says he's been living up north for quite a spell now, and is chief owner of a pants-pressing emporium down the street a piece, and has a fine trade and is doing well. And then before I can get a stray word in edgeways, he goes on to speak of several important things which has happened down home of late. I breaks in and asks him how come he keeps such close track of events way down there, seeing he's been away so long. And he says he's just naturally so doggone fond of that town he subscribes regular for one of the local papers and reads it faithful and hence that's how come he keeps up so well with what's going on which speaking of papers minds me of something he says it minds me at on count of readin the papers so stiddy i has a sweet streak of luck comin to me this ver day i'd like to tell you about it poindexter proceed i says proceed i'm goin to he says but s'posin fust we gets in off this year's street and sets down some whars whar we can be comfortable and not be interrupted trouble wid me is he says i knows so dad blame many people round here bein prominent in business the way i is at if i stand still more'n a minute somebody is sure to be comin up and slappin me on the back does you feel lack a light snack poindexter well it's getting to be close on to eleven o'clock now and i has not et nothing since breakfast except fifteen cents worth of peanut candy so i tells him i is agreeable we goes into a restaurant run by for and with colored and we sets down by ourselves off at a little table and he insists that he's doing the paying for on account of my being a boy from his old home town and he says for me to go the limit ordering. So I calls for a bone sirloin, and some fried potatoes and coffee, and a mess of hot biscuits, and a piece of mush-melon, and one thing and another. It seems like, though, he ain't got much appetite himself. He takes just a cup of coffee, and whilst I is eating all of that provender of his generous providing, he tells me about this here streak of luck which has come his way. First off he begins by asking me has I heard tell about the colored Arabian prince which he is now staying in New York. I says no. He says then I will be hearing about him if I sojourns long because the colored Arabian prince is the talk of one and all he's stopping at the palace afro-american hotel and he's got more money than what he can spend and he's going round the world studying how black folks lives in every clime and he's got thousands and thousands of dollars worth of jewelry which he wears constant but the piece of jewelry which he prizes as the most precious of all he lost it only yesterday which it is a solid gold pin shaped like a four-leaf clover with a genuine, real Arabian ruby set in the middle of it. This here gold-tooth boy, he tells me this while I is sauntering through the stake, and I can tell from the way he says it that he's leading up to something. Yes, sir, he says, yestiddy is when he lose it. And this mornin', he's got a advertisement notice inserted in the colored newspapers, sayin' as how he stan ready and willin' to pay fifty dollars fer its return to the hotel war he is stoppin' at, and no questions asked it And year bout half an hour before I runs into you, I'm walkin' along the street right up year a little ways, and I sees somethin' shiny layin' in the gutter. And I stoops down and picks it up, and ef it ain't the coloured Arabian prince's four-leaf clover pin, dog gone me! And here it is, safe and sound. And with that he reach in his pocket and pull it out and let me look at it a brief second, and I says to him that I don't begrudge him his good luck none. Only I wishes it might a been me which had found it, because fifty dollars would come in mighty handy. Then I says to him, I says, I s'pose you was now on your way to hand him back his belongin' and claim the reward. But he shakes his head, kind of some I tell you how tis, Poindexter. He says, to begin with and speakin' in confidences is one old time friend to another. I probly is the onliest person in this year city of New York, which the colored Arabian prince might make trouble for me if I was the one which come bringin' him back his lost pin. Ever since he's been here, he's been sendin' his clothes over to my establishment, which is right round the corner from the Palace African American Hotel to be pressed and ef i should turn up now wid this year pin he'd most likely as not claim at i found it stuck in one of his coat lapels and taken it out and kep it and the chances is he'd not only refuse fer to pay over the reward but furthermore might raise a ruckus and cast a shatter on my good name which it suddenly would hurt my professional reputation for a colored Arabian prince to be low raidin me at a way he's lacked so many wealthy persons is he's suspicious in his mind, so I don't keer to take no chances much as I craves to feel them fifty dollars warmin in the palm of my hand. But if a person which was a perfect stranger to him was to fetch the pin in and say he was walkin long and seen it shinin and picked it up, he'd just hand the reward right over without a mumblin' word. yas I says tha's so I reckon tain't no manner of doubt but what hits so he says, poindexter he says, brisker like I got an I.D.' It just this year second come to me what's the reason why you can't be the ordained stranger which texts the pin back to him you does so and i'll allow you ten dollars out of the fifty for your time and trouble what say i studies a minute and then i says i is sociable to the notion he says he'll go along with me and point out to me the hotel where the Coloured Arabian Prince is stopping at, and then tarry outside until I gets back to him with the money. I says I'll go just as soon as I has et another piece of mushmelon, which the first piece certainly was very tasty. So he waits until I has done so, and then he pays the check. Which comes to one hundred eighty for me and ten cents for him, and we gets up to start forth. But just as we gets to the door going out, he takes a look at a clock on the wall and he says I can't go long wid you you'll have to go by yousef I says Why for you can't go? He says I just this minute remembers at I got to catch the eleven forty two for Hartford, Connecticut whar i is gittin ready to open up a branch establishment. That's why for i have been enjoyin talkin with somebody from my own dear state so much at i lets the time slip by unbeknownst and now i jes about can git abo the train at the uptown station ef i hurries he scratches his head lemme see he says what all is we goin do bout at now then it seems like he scratches an idea loose i got it he says mainly on count of my bein in such a rush and you bein from my home town i'm goin mek you a heap sweeter proposition and de one which i already has made i'm goin halfen this year reward wid you That's what i'm goin do year's the plan you jez hands me over twenty-five dollars now for my sheer, and in you keeps the entire fifty which he'll pay you. see, I knows I is a fool to be doin it, but gettin to Hartford on time to-day'll mean a heap mo to me in the long run, and what de difference in the money would how about it, old boy? I says to him that it listens all right to me, and I'd give him the twenty-five in a minute. Only I ain't got it with me. When I says that his face falls so far his underjaw mighty near grazes the ground, and then he says Well how much is you got? Is you got twenty or even fifteen? I says I ain't got nothing on me in the way of ready cash, only car fare. But I says I has got something on me that's worth a heap more than twenty five dollars, and he says what is it i says it's this year's solid gold watch i says and i hauls it out and waves it before his eyes it's wot fully forty dollars i says but i ain't needin it on count of my havin a still mo handsomer one in my trunk which it was gift to me by a committee of the white folks two years ago for savin a lil white boy from drowndin off the upper wharf boat you tek the watch and give me say ten dollars boot, I says, and I'll collect the reward, and tharby both of us'll be mekin money, I says, cause you can sell the watch anywars for not less'n forty dollars. I done been offered at for it before now. He studies a minute and then he says that whilst he ain't doubting my word about the watch being worth that much money. Still, business is business, and before he consents we'll have to take it to a jewelry store half a square down the street and have it valued. I says to him, I says, that's suitable to me. But, I says, I thought you was in a sweat to catch a train. I'll tech the time, he says. I can hurry and mek it. Come to think of it, he says, at train don't leave the uptown station, 12 foe. Eleven forty-two is when she leaves from downtown i'm glad to hear it i says cause when the jewelry store man has got through zaminin my watch we can ask him to look at the tin too and tell us ef it's the genuine article it mout possibly be i says at they was two of these yer cloverleaf pins floatin round loose and one of em a imitation by havin' it examined long wid my watch, we both plays safe. He stops right dead in his tracks. Look YEAR, Poindexter. He says, "What's the use of all is YEAR projectin' round and WASTIN' up time?" You trusts me, he says, and I trusts you. Tha's fair. YEAR, boy, you TEX the pin and collects the reward. I text the watch and sells it for what I can get for it. Les close the deal, cause I pintedly has got to hurry from yer. Hold on, I says. How bout my $10 boot? I'll meck at five, he says. Gimme the five, I says. So he counts out five ones and yells something to me about the Palace Afro-American Hotel being straight down the street about half a mile on the left-hand side and in another second he's gone from view round the nearest corner but i does not go to look for no afro-american hotel nor yet for no colored arabian prints neither something seems to warn me twould only be a waste of time so instead of which as i steps along i figures out where i stands in the swap and it comes to this I is in to the extent of five dollars in cash, also one dollar and eighty cents worth of nourishing victuals and a clover leaf pin, which it must be worth all of seventy-five cents, unless the price of brass has took a big fall. I is out to the extent of telling one lie about saving a little boy from drowning and also one old imitation gold watch case without any mechanical works in it likewise and furthermore i can imagine the look on that gold-tooth nigger's face when he gets time to take a good look at what he's traded for and that alone i values at fully two dollars more in private satisfaction to J. poindexter so taking one thing and another Getting lost has been worth pretty close on to ten dollars, besides which it has taught me the lesson that when a trusting stranger goes forth in the great city he's liable to fall amongst thieves. But if only he stays honest himself and keeps his eye skinned, he cannot possibly suffer no harm at the hands of the wicked deceiver. End of chapter Four.